the word to us. The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Well, good morning, everybody. I'm hoping that you can hear me, especially after a little bit this morning and last week. Simon's taken all of my A material, so I've got no jokes left. <laughs> For those that don't know me, my name is Paul, uh, and today we're continuing our series on uh, Christmas, Why Bother? Uh, and as we've seen from the video, uh, mentioned already, we're looking at Joseph today. And like Simon was saying last week uh, about Mary, Joseph is someone that we don't really hear a lot about in the Bible, but especially considering his place in Jesus' life and the part that he has to play in the work that God is undertaking. Joseph is a part of our nativity story. It's a story that we've probably all heard a few times and one that we can get a little bit too familiar with. It's the opening act to God's main event. Jesus' life, his teachings, and ultimately his salvation, his sacrifice and resurrection. I'm hoping that we can blow the dust off a little bit this morning and gain a little bit of a deeper understanding of what God is doing through Joseph and in turn what that means for us in our lives today. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us all to understand more of what you're doing in our lives, to understand the significance of what you did all those years ago by being born. As we think about what's happening in our lives, help us to understand what you're saying. And I pray that you would take my words, help us to learn more of you this morning and to respond to you. Amen. So what's exactly happening in our passage? Well, basically, a man finds out that his wife is pregnant, but don't worry, because she says it's God's saviour child for the world. No problem. So what is God doing here? It sounds crazy. But I'd like to look at three things this morning. Firstly, the mind-blowing significance of what God is doing. Secondly, the response of Joseph. And then last of all, how we respond. What does this mean for us? So first of all, let's have a look at the significance. Have you ever thought about the virgin birth of Christ? The enormity and the marvel of God actually coming to earth and being born. This can be something that we forget about in the day-to-day busyness of life. Is it something that we've grown familiar with? Something that we say in the creed but doesn't really have much more impact on us other than that? Something that just had to happen so that we could get to the good stuff of Jesus' life and his teaching and ultimately our salvation? I know that I forget its significance. Things are busy, busy, busy. This needs doing, that needs doing. The work-life balance needs balancing. And I find that God slips down my list of priorities. I certainly don't have time to think about the, the way of his arrival, let alone give him five minutes prayer a day. And I wonder, were the first century crowd any different? Well, I don't think they were. For hundreds of years, God's people have been waiting for God to come back and intervene in the world. And ever since being banished from the Garden of Eden, they've been looking for a way back to him. Leaders and prophets had come and gone all promising this future Messiah and the coming of God's kingdom. And whilst always present, God was an entity from their history. They were kind of in the no-man's land, waiting for this promised second coming. The Holy Spirit hadn't been freely given yet, and it was a rare privilege for the select few to be touched by God. Indeed, a heavenly encounter often produced the words, do not be afraid from a heavenly being. That was people's natural response. 
God was related to through a series of sacrifices, rituals and ceremonies. Stories and teachings have been passed down from generation to generation. The people would have known that God had interacted with their ancestors. But where was he today? What was he doing today? And what was he waiting for? And then, against all of this, God turns up, quite literally. In our postmodern society, I think we can forget or lose the impact of how that was for these people. I wonder if God appeared to us all now here in a vision, what our response would be. I know I'd probably be on my face on the floor or frozen stiff. But I think that that is the game-changing significance of this event for the people of the time. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the all-powerful, almighty, nothing is beyond me, creative, true, pure, loving, holy, just, mighty, King of kings and Lord of lords. And guess what? He is real. And this isn't some well-wishing, positive thinking or mass ignorance. He is real. And this is what he was doing and showing to the people at the time. I am real. I remember the first time that I knew that God was real. Now, I'd always thought that there was a God, but I wasn't interested at all. I looked elsewhere in my life for fulfilment, things like money and cars and alcohol and lad culture. And then when I went to sixth form, I met a man called Ray, and we became really good friends. I knew that he was a Christian, but that was as far as it went. I still wasn't interested at all. And after five years of friendship uh, and following a dream in which I died, we had a conversation about what I thought would happen when I died. So I said to him, well, I'll be all right. I'm a nice guy. I'll go to heaven. And in a moment of utmost wisdom that I still don't comprehend, Ray simply said, no. And we spoke about God. And over the course of a week, he told me about Jesus, about his death and his resurrection and what that meant. And at the end of that week, he told me that I could take it or leave it. It was up to me. It wouldn't change our friendship, but I'd heard what I needed to hear, and now I had a choice to make. But I remember Ray's absolute conviction in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, the ask, seek, knock passage. It was a fact as far as he was concerned. If I knocked and sought God, then God would answer. He would turn up. So I pray for God to forgive me, and I invited Jesus into my life. And nothing particularly magical happened, and I went home. But as someone who had knocked on that door, I went with him to his church the following Sunday. And that's when things got real. And at the end of that service, God turned up. And I struggle, it's a little bit difficult for me to put it into words for you about what happened to me. On one hand, I was overwhelmed with my absolute guilt and the despair of my sinful situation. But on the other hand, I knew that I was entirely forgiven and set free. It's just a mix of these two balancing emotions that just blew me away. And it was an incredible experience. And it left me a blubbering wreck on the floor for a good half an hour. It's one that I'll never forget. But in that moment, I knew that God was real. Not because I'd read about him, or I knew facts, or I believed in my head. I knew because I had experienced him. It had gone from a, are you out there kind of thing, to a, oh my God, quite literally, you are real. And as it was for me, it was even more mind-blowing for the people of the first century and for Joseph. 
This is what God is doing in Joseph's time. He has chosen now, this moment, to step into the world and bring his kingdom. The God who created life out of nothing in Genesis is doing it again. And how is he doing it? Is he coming down on a cloud from heaven with angels and all singing and trumpets deafening the earth? No. He comes as a bunch of growing cells in the womb of an ordinary woman. God is being faithful to the promises that he's made and he's doing what he said he would. Now reading mentions the prophecy of a virgin giving birth and that's taken from Isaiah. And as Simon mentioned last week, there's also the lineage of the family that God is born into. Again, fulfilling more prophecies about his saviour being a descendant of King David. And then there's the virgin birth. God chooses that for several reasons. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is fully human. To be fully human, God submits himself to the whole human experience, including being an embryo and growing. He's born, he is helpless as an infant, and he is completely dependent on his parents. And he grows in exactly the same way that we all have, in the same broken world that we do, and experiences the ups and downs that we all do as well. As Christians, we also believe that Jesus is holy and sinless. To be divine, Jesus could not be born of man. God had to break the chain of the sinful nature that is passed down from generation to generation since Adam. And this is why the Holy Spirit is involved. It just proves that Jesus is fully human and fully God. That God has decided to arrive in the world is mind-blowing enough. But why is he here? Well, the two names that he's given answer that question. Jesus, meaning the Lord saves, and Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now, in our society, names don't really mean anything anymore. An example would be Paul, derives from the Latin for small. (laughs) (laughs) The importance of Jesus' name can easily be lost on us. But it wouldn't have been lost on the first century audience. Jesus, whilst a common name, and roughly translated as God to the rescue, it held significance for the people. It pointed to the times when God had rescued them in the past and their ancestors in the past. Most notably through Joshua, which is the Hebrew form of Jesus. This child is being proclaimed as the one who will save people from their sins. The other name that he is given, Emmanuel, or God with us, wasn't a prayer or some kind of wishy-washy hope. It was a fact. This child is a manifestation of this fact. God is now with us. This child is literally God with us. And in our modern society, people seem to have this impression that they have to come to God, that we have to earn our place, or we have to do things to find him. Well, that just isn't true. We cannot possibly come to him if he has not first done the unimaginable and come to us. This is why this child is here, and God is delivering on his promises. So how does Joseph respond? First, a little bit of context into the situation. So in their society, the families of Joseph and Mary would have arranged their union. This union would have been made public, and Joseph and Mary would then have been pledged or betrothed to each other. Now that period lasted for a whole year, and it could only be broken by death or divorce. And at the end of that year, 
they would have been fully married. And only at the end of that year was sexual union allowed. It's against this background that Mary becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And now she has to tell Joseph. I wonder how that went. Did Joseph come home from a hard day at the woodworking shop, step through the door and say, Hi dear, how was your day? And Mary replies, Oh fine dear, I went to the well, I cleaned the house, I went to the market, I got impregnated by the Holy Spirit, I looked after the animals, I washed the clothes, you know, the usual. Just what must Joseph have been thinking? Perhaps he was thinking, Oh my goodness, what are people going to say? Is Mary telling the truth? What am I going to do? And what are my options? I've, I know I've got to divorce her. And if I don't do this right, she could be stoned. Or well, how are we going to cover this up as the months go by? It's going to be pretty obvious. How am I going to live this down? And what if this is true? No one's going to believe it. And I wonder how his friends and family took it. I could imagine him down the pub with his mates. How would his peers react? So you just couldn't wait for the year of betrothal to be over then, Joseph, eh? Or how's the mother-in-law taking it? Or are you sure that Mary isn't winding you up? Or I hate to say it, mate, but are you sure she's being faithful? Or just, mate, what are you going to do? Now imagine if your friend told you this news today. What would you think? It's probably exactly the same reaction that Joseph's friends had. It's just crazy. And society at the time would have seen Mary's pregnant as a break in that uh, pledge year. She's pregnant. Of course she's been unfaithful. It's obvious. Joseph is entitled. In fact, it's almost his right to divorce her. And that could have meant that Mary would have been stoned for being unfaithful. Her life and the life of her child are quite literally in Joseph's hands at this point. And Joseph only has Mary's word to go on at this moment. So he does what he thinks is right, and he kind of ends up taking this middle ground of taking the divorce option, but quietly because he's a good man. And it's only after he's made his mind up that he has this heavenly dream. And this sets him on the right path, and he follows what he's commanded to by the angel. But still, it's not easy. Despite all of the public scorn, the possible alienation of friends and family, being unfriended on Facebook, the risks to himself and Mary, he's faithful to God. He's flying in the face of worldly wisdom and going against the grain of the society, a society that demanded it do what he, he do what it said, not what God said. Yet still Joseph is faithful to God. So what happens to Joseph as a result? Well, he's involved in God's plan and after his initial wobble, he follows God in it. He gets to be the earthly father of the saviour of the world. He gets to give his son the names Jesus and Emmanuel, knowing full well the true and amazing prophetic nature of them. He sees Jesus with his own eyes, the beginning of the fulfilment of God's promise for the world. He gets to be part of the plan that God had since the beginning of the dawn of time. So what does that mean for all of us, for you and for me? Let me tell you a story. So there was this guy in his early 20s. He was tall and good looking. Uh, he had a decent job and he was just trying to get on with his life the way that society said. 
you know, earn some money, get a nice car, move out of the parents' house. And then he became a Christian, pretty much out of the blue. He certainly didn't see it coming. And after a year of this new life, he felt challenged to know more about it. He knew the basics, but he just felt convicted to know more about his faith and the God that had changed his life. And the church he was at at the time ran a year-long discipleship course, and he felt that he should go on it. But it was a full-time year. What would he do? Society told him that he had to keep on with the life that he was building, obey the norm. He'd have to quit his job, give up on the nice car, go cap in hand back to his old part-time job that he hated, and his parents would have to put up with him for another year. And then what would he do at the end of the year? He'd be stuck in his old part-time job that he just really didn't like, with no further worldly experience to show for it. And he had no idea what he wanted to do with his life. He had no ideas to do any particular job. He'd happily do anything. But he just wanted God to tell him what to do. He wanted that dreamlike experience. So he prayed, and he felt that he should just do it and trust in God. So he did. He told his parents and his friends, who all thought he was nuts but didn't stone him. He quit his job and he faced the boss's stunned look when he told him why. And when the boss asked him, what would you do for money? What about your career? And just, what? In general. He went back to his old part-time job, a place that he'd hoped and thought he'd left behind. He did that year out, and pretty much at the 11th hour, God showed him what he wanted him to do with his life next, which is join the ambulance service. And that was another, are you sure, moment. That's another story. Now, that clearly isn't the same situation as Joseph's. It's just an example of being confronted with a challenge from God that society says is stupid. And I stand here saying all of this stuff to myself as well as to you. I'm challenged by what God wants of me in my life, and I'm torn by my own hopes and dreams and desires. This is difficult stuff, and I've no means saying that I know it all. Quite the opposite. So how do we respond? Do we follow God and reap the rewards and get the promises that he's given us, no matter what the cost to us? Or do we do what society says and play it safe? I'm sure we can all think of times in our lives where we felt the calling of God to follow him in certain situations that would be against the normal society. Like tithing, when society says, give it away, you've earned it. Save it for a rainy day or spend it on that new gadget. Like becoming part of a church family. What, get up early every Sunday morning? Why don't you just lie in, relax? Or making new and unexpected friends in a home, in a home group. When society says, what, give up another evening every week? You're so busy, just sit in front of the TV and tune out. Or getting involved in outreach like the street angels. You want to go out on Saturday night and help drunk people? You should be one of them. (laughs) Or perhaps time with God at things like new wine. You want to give up your two weeks on the beach, all inclusive, to stay in a tent in the rain? Now, the tent bit might be my thoughts coming through there, but you get the idea. God has much more in store for us. Now, perhaps you're facing a decision now. Which way do you go? What happens if I go my own way? 
what would have happened if Joseph went his own way? Well, Mary was still pregnant. This was still happening. Jesus would have been born, but Joseph would have missed out on the most amazing thing that God had done in the world. God is still at work, even if we don't join in with him. The incredible thing is that he wants us to join in with him. So like Joseph, we have got a choice. We can follow God, or we can go our own way. Now, the way that God asks us to go isn't always going to be the easiest or the most straightforward in the eyes of society, but it is always going to be the best thing for us. And I know this from my own limited experience, but I still find it challenging. And I often think that the fiery new Christian version of me from those years ago would definitely have a few words to say to the comfy older Christian version of me that stands here today. I find myself challenged. I know that there are things in my life that God wants me to do and there's ways that he's leading me. I'd much rather go my own way, to be honest. I'd much rather be comfy, stick in the career, stay in the nice house, play it safe. Rather than follow him in the challenges that he has for me, what do I do? What do we do? I just want to encourage you. If you're not sure what God is saying to you, where he's leading you, or what he's saying over the noise of society, then please pray with someone. Go on a retreat day, make some space for God, and ask him for confirmation. If we want the life to the full that Jesus has for us, then we need to say yes to him in the small things as well as those big things, day by day, little by little. And like Joseph, we could end up being part of his amazing story and seeing the promise of his kingdom filled here on earth. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. A very powerful message. Let's see if we can gather that together in a prayer. Lord, um, we thank you that you are so astonishingly, amazingly real that you did come to earth, that this is a truth, this is a fact. You came to show us the way and to save us. Lord, forgive us because we struggle so much in knowing just how to respond. So we lift those situations to you now. Everything that's in our hearts, Lord, that, that, it, that has come to our minds as Paul has been speaking to us, we just pray that that we will lift those situations to you and help us to face them. We pray for wisdom. We pray, pray for clarity and for guidance. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to follow you, so show us the way to go. Help us to respond in faith. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.